On the day of President Kennedy's assassination, his body was rushed out of the state of Texas to Bethesda, Maryland for an autopsy. J. Edgar Hoover, the director of the FBI, sent two agents, James Seibert and Francis O'Neill, to witness the autopsy and write a full report. Their report is one of the few windows we have to the autopsy of President Kennedy. Here is a 2005 interview with FBI agent James Seibert. You're listening to Public Affairs Radio from C-SPAN. James Seibert was one of two FBI special agents who witnessed the autopsy of President Kennedy. He was interviewed by Jack O'Flaherty on June 30, 2005. So I uh, entered the FBI and on duty on April the 2nd, 1951, agent training, and uh, that was my start, and I was in the Bureau for 21 years and was uh, ended up, I was the senior resident agent of the Hyattsville Resident Agency, which is a part of the Baltimore, Maryland division. Thank you, Jim. At, uh, at this point in time, um, as Jim mentioned, he was the senior resident agent at the Hyattsville RA. And the main objective for the interview today is uh, with the Jim's uh, unique position of uh, being the SRA at, at that office for the FBI at the time that the John F. Kennedy was assassinated in Dallas, Texas, and the circumstances surrounding that, the subsequent uh, travel to Parkland Hospital in Dallas, and then eventually President Kennedy's body transferred to uh, the uh, hospital in the Hyattsville, Maryland area. Uh, Jim and another agent were responsible for being the uh, agents from the FBI to witness that autopsy and report on the results. So with that as the lead-in, Jim, maybe you could take it from here. Well, I remember that day very well <clears throat> because uh, this was the day the inspectors were in the Baltimore division and uh, this particular day on, on November the 22nd in 1963 they were scheduled to come down to the Hyattsville Resident Agency and inspect the RA and also after that they were to go over to uh, Silver Spring and inspect the RA there and uh, we had had the inspection and uh, we eaten lunch with the two inspectors and come back, they had gone, started on their trip on over to Silver Spring, and we turned on the standard broadcast up in our resident agency office and heard the announcement that the president had been shot over in Dallas, and I immediately called on the radio and got a hold of the two inspectors in their bureau car, told them we'd heard this message and the, the action that they wanted to take, maybe they wanted to call headquarters or to that effect. Immediately after that, we called uh, Andrews Air Force Base, which is in our jurisdiction of the Hyattsville Resident Agency, and that's the home base of Air Force One and all the presidential flight unit. 
and we told them what news we'd heard and asked him if they had any idea of what time Air Force One would be returning to Andrews Air Force Base. Uh, and um, we didn't know whether the body would be on it or not, but we were trying to get background information. Uh, Colonel Best, who was the director of security there with OSI, told us that uh, yes, that the, it would be returning Air Force One with the president's body and that uh, it was due to arrive around 5.30 and then later on we found out it was to be around 6 p.m. So with that information I called uh, uh, Mr. Tully, who was my SAC in the Baltimore headquarters, and told him that undoubtedly he knew what was going on in Dallas. I told Tully that we had received no information from the Bureau, but we were going on out to Andrews Air Force Base and that the plane was supposed to arrive at around 6 p.m. and that if he wanted to reach us or the Bureau, we could be reached through the OSI and Colonel Best and uh, they'd get in touch with us. Um, the plane came in at uh, uh, 6 o'clock and it was on its final approach when we received a, a message from relayed through the Hyattsville Resident Agency from Baltimore stating that the Bureau wanted O'Neill and I, Frank O'Neill and I, to get in the motorcade that was out there and proceed with that to Bethesda and witness the autopsy, obtain any bullets that would be removed from the body and hand carry those over to the FBI laboratory to preserve the chain of evidence. And uh, so immediately after that we contacted Jim Raleigh who was the head of the Secret Service a job comparable to Mr. Hoover's with the FBI, told him what our instructions were, and he put us in the third car of the motorcade. Former FBI Special Agent James Seibert recorded in June 2005. We uh, left there, and there might something interesting here. The Metropolitan Police Department motorcycle squads were out there and going out Suitland Parkway, which was all overpasses. But when we got into uh, Washington, they cleared every intersection with the motorcycle, would play leapfrog, go up and clear one up ahead, and that motorcade never stopped once from the time it left Andrews Air Force Base until it stopped out at the Navy, National Navy Medical Center at Bethesda, Maryland, where the autopsy was going to be performed. Okay. Uh, when we got there, we uh, got a hold of uh, Special Agent Kellerman and uh, Special Agent Greer of the uh, Secret Service, and they were driving the uh, ambulance containing the body, told them what our instructions were, and Kellerman said that he'd already been informed by Raleigh that we were there and we were going to also witness the autopsy. I might add here that uh, this is important, that the FBI had no jurisdiction to take over this investigation. In fact, uh, it may sound funny, but there was no federal agency designated by any federal statute on the books that had the authority to conduct the investigation of the assassination or attempted assassination of a president of the United States. This law was passed in 1965. We're talking about 1963 now. All right. Jim, is it correct, though, that... Uh the basis for a jurisdiction was the assault on a federal officer. Is that? Uh, well, they never, the Bureau never even mentioned jurisdiction or anything. They just said, 
uh, and we knew that uh, we were in a position where we couldn't make any suggestions there during the autopsy or ask too many questions because it would look like we'd be controlling it or trying to steer the thing and uh, right. so uh, we were just there in an observatory capacity and uh, get any evidence in the forms of ballistics to take over to the laboratory FBI lab. Okay. Well, thanks for that uh, comment about the jurisdiction. That is helpful. So please proceed, Jim. Uh, the uh, start with they cleared out the uh, autopsy, the ante room there. And uh, first, I might mention that uh, before they cleared it out, uh, the casket was opened. There was no body bags involved in this at all, as been reported in some reports. The body was wrapped in two uh, wrappings of sheets. First one was uh, around the head area that was blood soaked, and the second was around the entire body. No clothing was in the uh, casket that arrived at Bethesda. That was sent over to the FBI laboratory. Um, they, as I say, they cleared the room out so they could do radiology work, take x-rays and photographs, and after they had accomplished these two uh, pieces of uh, investigation, they invited us back in and the official autopsy started. The decision was about 8 o'clock, but uh, the preparations and everything had taken this time from the time we arrived out there. That's 8 o'clock the night of, of November 20. Second, 22nd, 1963. And when uh, uh, Commander Humes, James Humes, who was the, uh, and uh, Commander Boswell were the two autopsy surgeons that both assigned to the Navy Medical Center there at Bethesda, <clears throat> when Humes, who was the chief pathologist who was going to do this, you know, he looked at the body, he said that he could see the tracheotomy had been made in the anterior part of the neck. And he said, apparent surgery in the head area. And the reason he said this, there was a piece about the size of a three by five, five card that was missing entirely from the skull. And later on during the autopsy, that piece was flowing and it was found in the limousine out of Dallas. But uh, these were the assumptions made at the start. Uh, the autopsy was done and uh, during the autopsy, I say this one piece was brought in, and uh, when they raised the president up off of the uh, gurney, or the autopsy table at this time, they noticed a bullet wound in the back, and uh, the uh, humes measured this, and it was uh, measured in uh, centimeters, and it was in the uh, upper part of the back, and to the right of the uh, spinal column. James Seibert was one of two FBI agents who witnessed the autopsy at Bethesda Naval Medical Center when President Kennedy's body was returned to Washington. Here's more on C-SPAN Radio. I might say here that while uh, Commander uh, Humes was making these measurements of this wound in the back, uh, Commander uh, Boswell was making entries on a face sheet which is out, has outlines of the body and and uh, he placed this bullet wound and he, uh, Boswell mentioned, listed that as being seven point, or, seven, or rather seven times four 
uh, millimeters and 14, uh, that was the size of this, and 14 centimeters from the right of chromium and 14 centimeters below the tip of the right mastoid process, which would make it, of course, in the lower upper part of the back, but uh, not in the neck area. <clears throat> and uh, they uh, decided that they would probe this. They had a chrome probe. And also, I should mention here that during this autopsy, uh, Lieutenant Colonel uh, Pierre Fink, from the Armed Forces Institute of Pathology, Institute of Pathology over at Walter Reed Hospital had come over to assist uh, these two uh, Navy pathologists. And of course, uh, they dealt in a lot of pathology work over there and uh, a man had sent him, one of the supervisors had sent him over to help. Uh, when they probed this uh, back wound uh, with the chrome probe, they uh, couldn't, just a short distance it would go in. They also, the rubber gloved finger, they kept Commander Humes probed out and they all said there's no exit. So this posed a problem. They were thinking about doing uh, more x-rays. I said, well, let me go and call over to Bureau Headquarters and uh, I'll uh, find out if there's any kind of a bullet that can fragmentize that they wouldn't pick up or you would the x-rays wouldn't see. I think they'd already x-rayed part of the back. So I went in and called Agent Killian over in the FBI firearms lab and asked him about this. And he said, well, I guess you heard about the bullet that they found on the stretcher over in Dallas at the Parkland Hospital. And I said, no, what's the deal? He said, well, he said, they don't know which stretcher it was on, whether it was Conley's or Kennedy's, but they found this and they're flying it into the laboratory. I said, well, is there anything else? He said, no, that's all the information we have at the present time. So I went back and told Commander Humes what I'd heard, what had been relayed to me about this bullet over there. And uh, I might mention here that there had been no contact up to this point, or late, even later on, between the Bethesda doctors and the Parkland doctors about what had been done at either location. And um, uh, my way of thinking, this was the time for them to call Parkland and find out what they had done over there on this trichotomy and this part of the head missing, what they had thought over there, and also uh, what they would uh, could add to it. And But no call was made. And Hume said, well, it was clear. He said that this uh, bullet wound in the back had probably worked its way out through cardiac manipulation done over at Parkland, and of course they <clears throat> had no verification that that had even been done over there. <clears throat> and he said that uh, it was clear that that was the bullet that had worked its way out was on a stretcher, and that death was due to this massive opening in the head there that was probably a bullet wound uh, gone in there that. That would have been a, a separate, separate bullet. wound, right? Separate, so you yeah. had those two hits in the body. Uh, would have been. So uh, that was the, the they removed a couple of uh, fragments, metal fragments, 
I might say that uh, they did show the they developed the radi the radiology work and the X-rays, and uh, when the brain that showed it and threw it up on the screen, it showed just like the Milky Way of uh, minute medical particles, and they were able to remove two of those, or three it was rather that they put in a glass jar. FBI agent James Seibert, along with fellow agent Francis O'Neill, witnessed the autopsy when President Kennedy's body was returned to Bethesda Naval Hospital. This interview, recorded in June 2005, was conducted by Jack O'Flaherty for the Society of Former Special Agents of the FBI. And the, and the position, excuse me, Jim, in witnessing this autopsy, uh, you and the other agent, uh, O'Brien, uh, Francis O'Brien, oh, excuse me, O'Neill, um, you, you were actually in a position that you were witnessing all the work that the yeah. doctors were doing. And At all times, one of us, or both of us, were in the autopsy room. There was nothing that went on what one of us was present. And, uh, when I, of course, when I went out to make the phone call, O'Neill was in there in the autopsy room. And uh, later on they had a break, and then, but we were there at all times. And we were close. That was a thing that was we were asked. How close were you to the autopsy itself? We were right there at the around the autopsy table where we could see everything and the measurements being taken and all. Um, Very good. Yeah, you, you're mentioning this. It's interesting, uh, as you say, they they discovered that and, and measurement, and that's part of the information, the diagram that you're providing to us in connection with this interview. And we appreciate that. Uh, but I guess the, the the puzzle or the mystery there was uh, uh, there was they could not find any exit wound for, for that bullet, and then you're checking with well, the lab. Found, they said it was an entry wound from the rear and back, but there was no exit wound because as I say when they probed it, they said there's no exit. Okay, thank and you. That's when we furnished them the information about the bullet over at the parkland was found on a stretcher, and they said that it, that was probably what happened that during cardiac manipulation over in Dallas this bullet had worked its way out of this entrance wound in the back and uh, yeah. then this big wound in the head was a source of cause of death right head wound. yeah thanks for clarifying that about the, the bullet that they're finding on the stretcher that was actually a, a bullet that was completely intact well that's referred to in the single bullet as the magic bullet because it was uh, in almost pristine condition when it was examined when they flew it into the lab and uh, now of course the uh, I'll get into this single bullet theory later on sure but uh, that was the consensus when we left there that night and we and as I said I'm let me just refer to sure please do uh, I might say here that uh, during the autopsy <coughs> and inspection of the area of the brain, <coughs> there were, I said a while ago, two or three, but this were, there were two fragments of metal that were removed by Dr. Humes, namely uh, one of them measuring 7.2 millimeters, which was removed in the right side of the brain, and an additional fragment of metal measuring one by three millimeters that was removed from this area, both of which were placed in a glass jar by Dr. Humes and it had a black top on it and O'Neill and I put our initials and the date on this so we could identify it later on 
and we later took this over to the laboratory for examination. There were, was no large bullet of any kind there at Bethesda during this autopsy that was uh, found. Uh, as I say, we hand carried this over to the laboratory and uh, turned it over to him and I, our cars were back out at Andrews Air Force Base. We had to get a bureau clerk to drive us out to Andrews from bureau headquarters in D.C. And I got in at 4.30 in the morning and uh, my phone started ringing at 6. <laughs> and uh, I sent a teletype that night from headquarters to uh, the, the bureau in Dallas and I called it in give it to the night clerk at Baltimore so he could also read it to tell him I mean, what happened during the autopsy. Uh, what happened after that, now this was the autopsy as far as we were concerned. It was done on Friday night, November the 22nd of 1963. At, at Bethesda Hospital? At Bethesda. No, in, 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 in Bethesda, Maryland. Yeah, apparently I may have said Hyattsville. And it wasn't until much later, several weeks, I was on leave down visiting my sister in Georgia. And my sister answered the phone, of course, and she said, Jim, it's for you. And it was uh, Lipton, uh, Lipton uh, that wrote the book, uh, Best Evidence. You're listening to C-SPAN Radio on WCSPFM Washington, broadcasting in HD. We're listening to former Special Agent James Seibert, one of two FBI agents who witnessed the autopsy when President Kennedy's body was returned to Washington and taken to Bethesda Naval Hospital following his assassination in Dallas, Texas. And uh, he identified himself and he said, uh, I have in front of me here your FD-302, and he says, about the autopsy of Bethesda, and he said, it doesn't agree with the official autopsy report. I said, the official autopsy report? I said, I don't know what you're talking about. He told me that uh, it didn't agree, and uh, I said, well, now, you say you're a lifting, and I don't know who you are. I said, uh, you say you've got the FD-302? And he said, yeah. I said, all right. I said, what are the names down at the bottom part of it there? And he said, well, your name and O'Neill's. I said, well, now look down with those initials. Is there any other initials in there? He said, uh, DFL. I said, well, I said, I know that that's the Chief Steno. I said, you, you've got the, the FD-302, but I said, I, I wouldn't have any further comment. I, he said, well, here's what you say. And I said, go ahead and read it. He read it to me, and I said, well, if that's what it says. I said, that's what happened that night. That's the record. And I stand by it. I, he said, well, who could I call a, to find out about this other? I said, you can call the Bureau. I gave him the address and everything. And that was when I found out about another change that had been made. Now, I point out here that I never heard anything. And if uh, the autopsy doctors there at the Bethesda had called me Saturday morning and said, look, we've called Parkland. We found about... They made a tracheotomy over a bullet wound and appeared to be an entrance wound in the neck. I said I would have dictated what they did that night, but it would have been in the form of a memo. It wouldn't have gone out into a, a summary report to Dallas, the office of Arger and everything. And uh, we'd have had the two reports as uh, they were given Friday night and what they 
changed uh, due to that. So, but they ended up with a single bullet theory. And um, so that's what, when he said that your 302 uh, does not comport with uh, the results of the autopsy, the official autopsy reports. And then in, in what regard specifically, again, Jim, that he's saying it? Well, he, uh, the, the autopsy he report. Mentioned, he mentioned that we said that the surgery in the head area, well, that, of course, was what the doctor first thought it was. And as I say, this piece of skull was brought in that was probably what he took to be surgery in the head. Right. And uh, the autopsy was his observation, his statement. But... Uh, our conclusion was what Humes had said, cause of death was this severe head wound and that the, the other wound in the back had been worked out by cardiac manipulation flow on the stretcher and and that was it. And that was the conclusion that night because they knew nothing about this bullet wound in the neck where the uh, uh, tracheotomy that information was only provided when the uh, when the, the, the when surgeon in Bethesda was in contact with the surgeon in Parkland. Saturday morning. Saturday morning. The body was in the custody of the funeral home. Yeah, that's November 23rd then, is that correct? 23rd, right. 23rd, and the the body of JFK, John F. Kennedy, the president, is uh, in the possession of the funeral home at that yeah. point in time. So that was... That was I a say, if they would have said, look, we've got a change on this autopsy report, we've got additional information, we would have dictated what they said just in a, in right. a file copy of that. But, but but then we'd have waited for what their other one, the report that they submitted, but we never saw that at all and uh, okay. left in the dark. So just to clarify then, what happened after the, the doctor at Bethesda received that information from his uh, fellow doctor in Parkland, they went ahead then and modified the results of the autopsy yeah, report. They, they but this was after that you were not you did not have privy to that modification. They worked until 5 o'clock Saturday morning. The three doctors, uh, Humes, Boswell, and Fink, and uh, people from the uh, Gauley uh, funeral home there, and uh, reconstructing the skull. I mean, they had this piece that came with flowing in and everything. Yeah. And then they called after this, after 5 sometime, probably about 7 maybe, they called Parkland. This is the first contact between Parkland and Bethesda. And that's when uh, the doctor over at Parkland said, well, I guess you know, or I don't think he intimated that. He said, well, I guess you should know that where I made this tracheotomy was over what appeared to be a bullet entrance wound. Former FBI Special Agent James Seibert recorded in June 2005. In your opinion, uh, Jim, uh, What's the significance historically? Would you uh, would you think uh, that there would be what would be the difference uh, from uh, as I say from the historical standpoint on treating it from what your FD three hundred two reflected based on your presence and your information as opposed to what the additional information was that put in merely merely the fact that that what was thought to be damage due to the tracheotomy was was now uh, uh, was now indicated to be that that's where the wound, uh, the exit wound, right? Well, what this does, 
is when you get notification that this was a bullet wound that they put the tracheotomy and cut through that over apartment, you've got another bullet to contend with. Our report dealt with uh, two bullets, but only one, the head wound, and the back wound not being a wound that would contribute to death or anything, whereas you change this in the single bullet theory with the wound being moved up gradually to the base of the neck in the back where it would go come enter from the rear at a downward angle in the base of the neck and then come out in the anterior wound it just wouldn't be an entrance wound it would be an exit wound and then they had this same bullet hitting Connolly and uh, in the back and the arm and the radius and, and, and some of it ending up in his thigh left there and, and this is the single bullet theory that, uh, which has nothing to do with the death of the president right. that's the bullet wound in the head that, where there was blowing out yeah and as I recall in the report of the Warren Commission uh, at the uh, at the building where Oswald was located and fired the rifle from that on the floor out of that window were three spent shells so the, that's where the then the presumption was that then there was a third round that was fired. Mm -hmm. Now, if they couldn't have located that, would that have been a round? Would that possibly, uh, could that have been the round? That there have been a lot of theories on this. There was a, um, <clears throat> one of them said that they thought that there was a misfire, not a misfire, but a miss. Mm -hmm. And you remember that the curb was struck by, yes. and one fellow, that piece of the curb splintered his cheek and everything. So that would be, uh, if you had two bullets, the one in the back, the one in the head, and then the one that was amiss, that would be three bullets. But uh, they have even been conjectured that maybe there was more than that. And... Uh, there was a uh, motorcycle that belonged to the Dallas Police Department that the uh, key was left open on the radio. And uh, there was some noise on that. And, uh, some, one of them sounded like a bullet wound off of the tapes. But uh, there was a question they thought, too, that it could have been backfire from a car or a motorcycle. So no one, uh, I don't think, has an accurate hadn't been decided yet. Right. The report of the Warrant Commission, though, that, that reveals the modification that was conducted, that was provided on the autopsy based on the conversation and the surgeon in Bethesda with the surgeon yeah. in Parkland. Yeah. Now, we, O'Neill and I didn't go before the Warrant Commission. We were never called. We were interviewed by our inspector, Senator from Pennsylvania, who was the uh, counsel for that, and uh, we were notified through... Uh, Baltimore that uh, we were to be interviewed given a date and it would be inspector's office in Washington DC and uh, we went down there and inspector interviewed O'Neill and I for oh probably 30 minutes or so and uh, we weren't able to take notes on this but uh, when we came out I told Frank I said Frank the first place we're going to stop is bureau headquarters and I said from fresh recollection while it's still fresh memory I said we're going to dictate a memo as to 
what questions we can recall him asking us and what our responses were, which we did. Special Agent James Seibert worked out of Hyattsville, Maryland at the time of President Kennedy's assassination. When the body was brought to Bethesda Naval Hospital, he and another agent witnessed the autopsy. Here's more on C-SPAN Radio. Later on, uh, I was really had to testify between before two congressional committees. One was the House Select Committee on Assassinations. This was in 1977, and uh, they came down from... Uh, Tampa by plane, the agents from this agency, and uh, interviewed me at a motel over here in Fort Myers. And then I never was called, I was called some by the bureau headquarters about maybe when right after this happened and our FD-302 was published. They say, was this your wording or Dr. Hume's? And of course we assured them that anything, the measurements and all was ours was the Humes, not ours. We weren't doctors. But uh, uh, when I think about it, the uh, uh, in the 1997, 20 years later, the Assassination Records Review Board was appointed to go out and I might say here, too, that this House Select Committee on Assassinations ended up with the conclusion that it was probably a conspiracy, but no one would be able to prove it. Now, this was in their uh, report, and this was uh, also uh, mentioned at the Assassination Records Review Board. But the uh, Review Board made it quite clear when I went up there for a four-hour deposition and that uh, this was not, they were not going to arrive at any conclusions. They were going to gather all the information they could get from witnesses, any kind of uh, notes, communications, uh, things of that type uh, they would uh, obtain. And this would all go on the internet, which it did, and everything. And uh, when I went up there for that deposition in 97, I was asked about this uh, interview that we had given over at the Bureau, or the memorandum that we had given them about this questions Spectre had asked us. And uh, the uh, person that asked us these questions interrogated us was Attorney Jerry T. Gunn, G-U-N-N, on the Assassination Records Review Board. And he asked me, he said, now isn't it true that after you were interviewed by Spectre that you dictated this memo over at the Bureau? He said, did you ever see this after it was typed up? And I said, no. I said it was a Bureau memorandum that would go in their headquarters, but I never saw the thing to proofread or anything. He said, well, take a look at this. And he handed me a three and a half page, uh, or rather a five page thing all typed up. He said, is this pretty well? I said, this is it. I said, it's in question answer form and everything. You know, and I both uh, uh, saw this and we were both given copies there. And in that, uh, when we were interviewed, uh, Spectre asked us, he said, did you make any notes? And we said, oh, many notes. And he said, well, what do you have them now? We said, no. He said, well, where are they? And we said, they were destroyed. And under bureau policy back in those days, you dictated within five days, and you checked your dictation typed up when it came back from the steno pool and made any corrections for the steno to correct. When it came back and it compared with your notes, 
you initialed a flat top copy for the file copy and destroyed your notes. And when he said, now, uh, did you ever see what Spectre said when they gave us the interview? Uh, interviewed what your responses was, and I said no. And he gave me a uh, one and a half page paper that was um, nothing in question and answer form. He that's, said, uh, "That's a letter from uh, from Senator Specter." Memorandum from Arlen Specter to Mr. J. Lee Rankin, who was on the Warren Commission. He was the, sort of the secretary, general secretary, kept all the notes made by the uh, right. seven-man member and everything. And the date of that memorandum? The date of this memorandum is March the 12th, 1964. So at that time, he already had possession of our report, the uh, Dallas uh, summary report, that where we had, our whole 302 was in there and, huh. and uh, an interview with him. What he says in this, and this... This is something I've never been able to be at peace with. He said, uh, S.A. Seibert advised that he made no notes during the autopsy. S.A. O'Neill stated that he made only a few notes which he destroyed after his report was dictated. And uh, also, uh, he asked us about the time we'd spent in the Bureau, and I told him I was... Uh, approaching 13 years, no deal was approximately 10 years of service in the bureau. And uh, he said, he said I interviewed Special Agents Francis X O'Neill and James W. Cyber in my office on March the 12th, 1964, from approximately 10 a.m. to 10:45 a.m. So, 45 minutes that he said that he interviews. From the Oral History Project of the Society of Former Special Agents of the FBI, James Seibert. Conducting the interview is Jack O'Flaherty. And he's stating in there that you're stating that you did not take any notes. He asked me, he, he said, I said that I never made any notes. And he must have thought I was a genius. I mean, I had names of people that attended their ranks, uh, times, decisions, and everything like that. Uh, it'd be impossible to remember all right. that kind of stuff. Is so you, FD302s and, uh, you, you did take notes, and so that's a completely uh, erroneous. And this was a joke. And then, so that's an erroneous statement then on the that's problem. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's a false statement. Yes. Um, the notes that you took, um, they were also also destroyed after you uh, really yeah. provided on the form of the 302, which yeah. was. Pretty much the After procedure, this I think. 302, we sent it back for corrections because this was a joint FD-302. Correct. O'Neill had a bunch of notes, so he just notebook. I had a bunch, and uh, we got to sit right there together and dictated this thing. Right. Uh, for the... Um, now, I might say this on this single bullet theory. Please go ahead. Uh, so, uh, when you had the other autopsy... Uh, no other autopsy. The other autopsy report, because there was no autopsy done at, at uh, Parkland. I might mention here too that there, Texas has a law that if there is a murder committed in Texas, the autopsy has to be done in Texas. And you had the uh, circuit judge there talking with Kellerman, who was a Secret Service agent in charge, 
And he said, you can't remove this body and take it back to Washington or to Bethesda. He said, because Texas law. And he said, well, we're taking it. There was some uh, strong discussion there. And finally, the uh, Rose, who was the old, uh, he was the county uh, uh, examiner. Coroner? Yeah. Uh, county uh, coroner. Coroner, yeah. Trying to think, yeah. County coroner. He would have done the autopsy there if they would have kept the body there in Texas because he had done the autopsy on uh, on Oswald, he did the autopsy on Ruby, he did the autopsy on Tippett, the officer that was gone yes. down, and he would have done the autopsy on <coughs> on uh, the president. I mean, had it been done there. But, uh, So when you had this other wound, you, uh, you had this change, they, they moved this up, uh, even Burley, Kellerman, Burley was the president's personal physician, Kellerman and uh, uh, Greer, the two Secret Service agents, O'Neill and myself, all said that when that face sheet, or the, when they the face sheet was where the bullet wound had been. And as I say, that was verified by Burley. And when they come out with this thing about it being the base of the neck, they said that bullet wound, all of us agreed that uh, later on that it was much lower than that. Lower than the neck. Yeah. Right. Uh, for the record for this interview, Oh, uh, Jim, yeah, why don't you go through uh, on and maybe just identify the documentation that you've been kind enough to make copies of. Please do. And that was uh, when this assassination directors of the U Board went around to different people. Uh, I didn't have my; they were destroyed. But uh, I took up some other things that I'd got uh, out of the magazine. General American Medical Association had some interviews in there with uh, Humes and everything, and I took those up, and they already had them. But they were, so when they uh, were doing, they, they told uh, O'Neill and I that, um, and it came out later in uh, July of 1997, this is a, they said that they uh, went to uh, J. Lee Rankin's son, you're listening to C-SPAN Radio and former FBI Special Agent James Seibert, one of two agents who witnessed the autopsy when President Kennedy's body was returned to Washington. I might say that Ford, Gerald Ford, is the only living member of the Warren Commission now, of those members. And they went to Rankin's son and they said, would you by any chance have anything memorabilia-like that your, that your dad gave you, something you could keep? And he said, I might be dead or not. might be able to do you better than that. And he went upstairs and came out with a big trunk-like affair, which contained 40,000 notes, all of which were made by the seven members of the Warren Commission and all their discussion on this. And when they reviewed all of these, they had a chance to review them, they noted that uh, the uh, final report that went out uh, as the Warren Commission, not the FBI report, because we still don't have any jurisdiction, uh, stated that um, 
this bullet wound was in the base of the neck. And uh, they noticed, in comparing all the notes, Russell's and all the others, and that Ford had changed this, uh, Gerald Ford, so they called him out of uh, Colorado. And he admitted, I have here a copy of uh, the Associated Press, appeared in the Fort Myers New Press on July the 3rd, 97. And that, that's the uh, uh, statement of the whole thing here. And it, it says, 33 years ago, Gerald R. Ford took pen in hand and changed ever so, pen in hand and changed ever so slightly the Warren Commissioner's key sentence of the place where a bullet entered John F. Kennedy's body when he was killed in Dallas. And uh, <coughs> so, uh, does the state where the change the change was made from instead of right, the I'll read that right here. Sure. Associated Press article said the staff of the commission, now this means the Warren Commission staff, had written, quote, a bullet had entered his back at a point slightly above the shoulder and to the right of the spine. Ford suggested changing that to read a bullet had entered the back of his neck at a point slightly to the right of the spine. The final report said, quote, a bullet had entered the base of the back of his neck slightly to the right of the spine. And it said, uh, uh, I say that was the Warren Commission, which uh, has been changed. And uh, so for that reason, they asked me, what, you witnessed the autopsy, what do you think happened? And I always say this, I don't for one minute say that I don't believe there was a conspiracy or there, there was not a conspiracy. But when it comes to the single bullet theory or the magic bullet theory, uh, I won't buy it. I stood right there as close as I am to you here, a couple of feet, and looked right into that back wound and uh, I have read the reports on the holes in the clothing and they mentioned and I have all this other the where it was moved gradually by and later by Ford in the official report and uh, I just can't and by that single bullet theory as you say the, the magic bullet theory you mean what a, a contention that this isn't the bullet the bullet that has anything to do with the death of the president that was the, that was the massive skull right but the single bullet theory is to account for Connolly being hit and all this you know I see that it enters the president's back or are uh, to the one report but to the base of the neck, neck the other so that it can come out the anterior neck through this hole where the trachea incision was made and then went on it to goes over and it, it, would, it can't keep a straight line either if it hits Kennelly the way it would diagnose and die and hits him and wounds him you mean, and then comes out on a stretcher in a pristine condition. Yeah. Wounds the governor of Texas, yeah, Connolly. You know. Yeah. From June 2005, former FBI Special Agent James Seibert. Now they claim that in this single bullet theory that this bullet when it entered the base of the neck because it didn't hit any bone but there was no probing done to prove that that night at the autopsy. I know we were there until it was concluded. <coughs> there, there was nothing.
and done to determine if there were any shattered well, bones no, in there. Yeah. No, no going down through, run, trying to trace that bullet down right. through the neck right. coming out. You had the Attorney General, who was the President's brother. You had Burley, who was a retired admiral, a President's personal physician. And uh, Jackie Kennedy, who, of course, uh, was familiar with that. And I think their idea was to get him back to Washington and to Bethesda, which was a U.S. Naval hospital. Even uh, Humes, in, when he was interviewed by the uh, Journal of American Medical Association editor, said, he said when he heard out he was going to be doing the autopsy, he says, why in the world aren't they doing it at Walter Reed at the uh, Armed Forces Associ uh, Association of Pathology, Institute of Pathology, Armed Forces Institute of Pathology. He said they're much more up to date on that. But of course, the, the decision had been made. Now, why should it have been conducted at Dallas? Uh, as I say, you had Dr. Rose there, this uh, county coroner that was well respected in the autopsy circles pathologist. The clothing would have been there for the doctors. The presidential limousine would have been there with all the bullet nicks and... Uh, right, for further examination? Yeah, mm -hmm. for what you've been done. Uh, Rose at Parkland would have been aware of the bullet wound in the neck. The doctors are all there, and the uh, nurses are all there to help do any questions. You lost all that when you moved the body to Bethesda. Dallas police were available on the scene that had conducted Tippett and all this and everything. All leads would have been coordinated through uh, Dallas because later on President Johnson put the Bureau in charge of this whole investigation, but this wasn't that night when uh, decisions had to be made. And uh, word wounds of Governor Connolly and JFK could have been considered as related to the shooting you had, both of them right there, and doctors and nurses attended both of them. Uh, and another thing, I don't know what you thought of this or not, <clears throat> but <coughs> ignoring the Texas law requiring autopsies be done there probably caused some ill feelings between Parkland doctors and uh, the Bethesda doctors because he was just more or less kidnapped out of uh, the uh, Dallas hospital there Parkland. and put on Air Force One with President uh, Johnson and Swarnville. So uh, I, I don't think there was any animosity, but maybe I don't know why Bethesda didn't. They're a civilian Navy hospital. I mean, military is composed with Parkland civilian. Maybe they didn't hesitate to call over there because of that and thought, well, we'll do it our way. So those are some of the reasons. So you feel the, the emotions were running high on the president's uh, side, the family side, and everyone to, to uh, yeah. r remove this back to right. D.C.? I, I think uh, the decision was made. And in fact, I've, I learned later, and this was through source I had in Secret Service, that they didn't even decide on, on Bethesda until they were in the, the traffic pattern up there, the military uh, traffic pattern there in the Washington, D.C. area, and they finally decided that they'd go into Bethesda rather than uh, land there at uh, Walter Reed or 
place where they're right. getting the water read. How are they, were the arms institute of pathologies there that would have helped along too? To your knowledge, Jim, to what extent was an autopsy conducted at Parkland? Like, was it halfway through, or there, there was, was none done? None done. In fact, just that tracheotomy. Uh, that, that right, and he wasn't even turned over on the stretcher. I've reviewed the reports of the autopsy, not the autopsy, but the examination there. What was done at Parkland? Parkland, Dallas. They didn't know. Now get this: Parkland didn't know about the wound in the back when he left there, and when Bethesda gets the body, they know about the bullet wound in the neck. Now, isn't this pathetic for a president of the United States? What do we learn out of this? Well, we've got a law now in 1965 that happens. If, if, if I, I was a senior resident agent there in, in the Bureau, but if this would have happened now, I would be responsible because the Bureau would have exclusive jurisdiction and the, it would be a federal law. And uh, I, I would have been free to say, don't you think you should call Parkland? Let's call Parkland and find it. But if I had done it back then, all it would have taken was uh, a call by some high-ranking official or admiral or general, say you've got an agent, uh, tell Mr. Who you've got an agent over here trying to run the autopsy. And I'd have been on my way to Butte, Montana with cumulus nimbus clouds and hail coming out of them. <laughs> You think it fantasy, Jim? I guess to the doctors at Parkland, and not discovering that uh, wound in the, in the in, in his back, they didn't turn him over. Maybe, maybe that was due to the to the uh, the decision to rush and get oh, Kennedy yeah, out of there. Right. Yeah. They, they they said no autopsy here. This is what Kellerman and them told them. We're, right. we're going back to Washington. We do it. Yeah. Sure, that was it. And uh, see now they inserted a tube on that tracheotomy, you know, too, and. Uh, they did everything they could, but that massive uh, head wound, wound uh, the doctors, uh, they knew that uh, it was just a question of when to administer last rites. Former Special Agent James Seibert was one of two FBI agents who witnessed the autopsy of President John Kennedy at Bethesda Naval Hospital. He was interviewed by Jack O'Flaherty on June 30, 2005. You're listening to C-SPAN Radio and more recordings from the Oral History Project of the Society of Former Special Agents of the FBI.